each new unpacking, each new system of oppression that I'm unfurling and deconstructing within me, there's this like absolutely just as you described it, there's like a flashback montage where I suddenly see all of these different experiences that I had through a completely different lens and things feel like they make more sense to me. Like seemingly separate memories in time are becoming threaded together as I learn more about myself, the world that I was raised in, my parents, et cetera, et cetera. Hello, hello. That was Nick Strack, my guest for season one, episode nine of Migrations. I cannot wait for you all to listen to this conversation. Nick is a parenting coach, and their migration story and philosophies really changed the way I thought, even in 45 minutes. But before we dive in, I just wanted to thank my Patreon patrons for their support. I have 14 patrons now. Yay! People are contributing between $1 to $50 a month, and I seriously couldn't do this without you all. I have a goal to get up to 20 patrons by the end of June. Can you help me? While yes, the money helps to go toward editing costs, I care more about loyal supporters than the dollar amount. I have always tried to focus on quality, which is why over the course of these episodes, I'm continuing to try new things each time. Thanks to my awesome editor, Quincy Sarah Smith, and listening to other podcasts, I'm able to improve a little bit each time. Also, as a side note, Quincy has his own podcast called Asian Americana, and you have to listen to it. I'll link to it in the show notes, but for real, subscribe today. Okay, so back to my goal. I would just love to have six more of you wonderful listeners as patrons by the end of June. So by the time this airs, that leaves just a little less than six weeks to meet this goal. Also, if you pledge $5 a month, I have a new benefit. You get some migration stickers. And who doesn't love stickers? As I've said before, I truly appreciate you all supporting a podcast that centers Asian voices. I have learned so much from creating this podcast already, and I hope as you listen that you've learned a lot too. Help me continue to share these stories. Thank you. All right, now on to the show. Hi, everyone. Today I'm going to be talking to Nick Strack. Nick is a mixed race, Korean and Indian, autistic, non binary, queer parent of color. Nick's pronouns are they, them. They are currently living in a multi-generational home with their parents, their husband, and three-year-old child. Nick works as a parenting coach living near Chicago. You can find them on Instagram at Nick Strack, that's N-I-C-S-T-R-A-C-K, and on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Nick Strack. I also just wanted to add that for context, um, given the current pandemic crisis, we are recording this episode on April 25th. Welcome, Nick. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So happy to have you. Um, so I just want to start out, actually, I just peeped on your Instagram that you are on day three of cutting back on caffeine. Oh, yeah. How is that going? <laughs> Today was not great. So a bit of context, like I have no, this is not a thing that I have any belief that anyone else needs to do, but I just chose to do it because I was starting to feel anxiety, like the physical sensations of anxiety. Like my heart was beating a lot faster. I would have like knots in my stomach 
so much more over the last few weeks. And there's obviously this time, as you said, we're recording during this pandemic. And I wasn't sure if I was just drinking more coffee. So I decided to scale back to give my body a chance, I guess my brain a chance to really figure out what's going on in my body. So today was tough. Today's the third day. But I think that because I generally only drink like one or one and a half cups, and it's usually in the morning, I don't consider it like a huge shift for me. Sure. Yeah, I'm definitely a regular coffee drinker. And I would say that I usually have one to two cups a day too. Though I do also feel if I had to pull back, I would really feel it. But it's funny you mentioned this because it is true that it's curious to understand how anxiety levels are differing now and how our bodies are adjusting to it. Yeah. So yeah, well, I wish you luck with that. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you. Um, my parents, they never drink coffee, but they always drink chai in the morning and in the afternoon. And I remember like if they don't have their afternoon chai, it's like over. Like you can tell. (laughs) (laughs) Caffeine withdrawal is real. Mm -hmm. So I know you're a parenting coach. I just wanted to see if you could tell us more about what that looks like and how it came to be um, the work that you do. Sure. I'll start with what it looks like, that aspect of being a parenting coach. All of the work that I do with parents is founded on this truth. The relationship you have with yourself defines the relationship you have with your child. And the reason why that is at the core of all of my work is because I believe that the culture of parenting and mainstream messages often center the child in the parent-child relationship to the short-term detriment of the parent, and then to the long-term detriment of both of them. Because when a parent doesn't show up in their fullness in their relationship with their child, then the child hasn't been modeled like a full expression of humanity. So they go out into the world with this limited understanding of what it means to be human. And then they're like, holy moly, there's a lot more happening here than I realized because I didn't see that in my parent. So that's where I support folks in cultivating a more conscious relationship with their self and from that place to make decisions and be able to take responsibility for what they are bringing into their relationship with their child because every parent has once been a child. And so using their own lived experience, like the parent using their lived experience to help them understand like what is happening in me right now. Like often in the times when it can feel really complicated with a child who may not be doing what the parent is asking and it's bringing up stuff for the parent, the work that I support them in doing is called like figuring out what is happening here. Like what's coming up for you? What is this reminding you of? And then being able to navigate things that are coming up from the past and then also like engaging with a child in the present. So like that's what I do with folks and the way that it came to be is in a lot of ways through my relationship with my mom. Yeah. I would say in a lot of ways it's been influenced by my relationship with her because I was assigned female at birth and was born and raised here in the States. Uh, My mom was born and raised in Korea and in our relationship, we each, were conditioned into and acquired through whatever avenues of conditioning uh, beliefs about and expectations of and for each other and ourselves and what it meant to be 
in what I only knew to be a mother-daughter relationship for like the first 30 years of my life. It was only after I got pregnant and gave birth that I realized that I'm non-binary. And so that added a whole other layer. But in the challenges, I would say, that my mom and I had in our relationship with each other, where so often we would both be wanting the other person to see us for who we were, but we were both so caught up in the expectations and the disappointments that we were each experiencing in who this other person ended up being, that after she and I had this one particularly large fight in January of 2014, I was just like, I don't know if I want to be parent if this is how it's going to be. And so that really started me thinking about like, well, what does it mean for me to be a parent? And what does it mean for me to take responsibility for how I want to show up as a parent? And so that was where I started my own journey of like what I called parenting before becoming a parent, where I started to look at my own conditioning and how I was raised and what worked for me, what didn't work for me. And then now I support other folks in doing the same. That's really interesting. And I like how you talked about parenting yourself before you become a parent. I have seen some language around like reparenting yourself. And to me, that's kind of what it sounds like. Yeah. I also really liked how you talked about being a parent. And I'm not a parent just for context, though I had worked extensively with children while I was a speech language pathologist. And when you had said that who you are as a parent, like that relationship, it like it starts with you. It starts with the relationship to yourself. And I feel like that's such not a traditional way of looking at it, though I think it's a great way of looking at it because so often when people think of like a parenting coach or parenting strategies or looking for a book about parenting, it's like, this is what you're supposed to do with your child, but not how are you supposed to be with yourself, right? Because like we're always projecting on anybody, not just children, anybody who we are onto them, our judgments, our experiences, our biases, the things we don't even know about ourselves. So I think that is such a smart and compassionate way to approach it. Thank you. Yeah, I would definitely say it is not the norm. And it bumps up against a lot of, especially with folks who've been assigned female at birth, like conditioned as women, it bumps up against a lot of mainstream messages like martyrdom. Like that martyrdom is aspirational for a mother that she would just be selfless and give her all to her child. Like I have a no for that. And that is not a popular, like my stance is not popular with people who have a yes for it, like consciously or unconsciously. Sure. So do you find yourself coaching those that already kind of understand that that's what they need to do? Or do you find yourself also coaching those that have to kind of switch their perspective or both? I definitely am more on the side of folks are already ready to do the work of taking responsibility for their own stuff by the time we work together. I don't find that my work attracts people who are not at least curious about how mainstream messages may not be working for them, because the way that I share my work is fairly, I would call it blunt. <laughs> like, I'm very like, how is contempt at the heart of XYZ or something? Like, I ask these questions through memes on Instagram, and I don't think that they're going to be pondered by people who aren't at least a little bit like, oh, I wonder what my responsibility is in my role as the parent in the parent-child relationship. Sure, definitely. So with that being said, you are a parent. 
What have some of your biggest challenges been over the course of being a parent and especially now given the pandemic? (sighs) I think one of the most overarching challenges for me has been clearly identifying my yes and my no for stuff. Like having been conditioned as a woman, I believe that I'm just supposed to say yes to whatever it is that my kid wants and just do it regardless of my energy, what I want to be doing, that I should just do it because that's what he's asking me for. And even like in his newborn phase, not necessarily asking with words, but just like when he was crying for stuff, I would just give him whatever he wanted. And so a big huge practice for me, especially after connecting with James Olivia to Hillman and working with them around right relationship. A lot of my work has been being able to identify like, what is it that I want? And figuring out if there's room for me and if what I'm up to in my relationships is sustainable. Like that piece has been huge. And the way that it shows up in my daily life is often paying attention to, especially when I disregard my no. That's what I call it. So when Jack wants to do, this is an example that I give um, because it happens so frequently where he'll want to do a messy project. He's three and a half. And my definition of messy is I have a low threshold for mess, let's say. (laughs) So when he wants to do a messy project and he's so, so, so excited about it, if I have a no for it, if I'm like, I don't have the resources to stay calm and chill and grounded while he's making a mess. Because sometimes I do when I'm super resourced. I'm like, cool, let's do the messy project and then we'll clean it up and it'll be all good. Uh, But when I am depleted in some way and he wants to do a messy project, if I say yes, when I have a no, I have experienced firsthand how much that can suck for both of us. Because I start to get more frustrated when he's making this mess, even though I'm the one who said yes. So like I'm dealing head on with the consequences of me disregarding my no, saying yes to him. And then he's navigating the consequences of me disregarding my no, because I'm being more strict about it. And I'm like, oh, don't like, don't mix it like I'm making a bigger mess, right? So like, it sucks for both of us. So that disregarding or bypassing or completely not even acknowledging my no has been like going from that to now practicing, not only regarding it, but advocating for it has been one of my biggest challenges and now practices as a parent. Yeah. And just going back to what you were saying in terms of looking inside yourself, being conditioned as a woman is also being conditioned to not have a certain amount of self-worth to have confidence in yourself, right? Yeah. Confidence in what your yes and no is. It seems like such a gray area because it always seems so contextual about what other people want. Yes. Yeah. How do you think, because I know you said that your relationship with your mother really influenced your decision to pursue this work. So how do you think that was also influenced in terms of defining this yes and no, and also like where that came from in terms of that relationship? There's something that one of my teachers, Jen McCabe, calls the culture of contempt. And she talks about how here in the States, like we're conditioned into this culture of contempt. And the way that I think about contempt is like, if I have contempt for you, then I think that I know better than you, that I can do better than you, that I understand better than you can, that I can handle more than you can. I can make decisions for you. I can take responsibility for your feelings, like all that kind of stuff. And so in Korean culture, And with my mom having been the oldest 
And had they been unmothered from the age of eight, I think that she was very much conditioned into like that the role of the caretaker means that you must fulfill all the needs of everyone around you without asking what it is that they want. You must guess really accurately and then go and do it. And so in that kind of conditioning, there's no real space for the person who's doing all of this, like giving and giving, giving to the other people. There's no space for them to even have a yes or a no, because they're so externally focused on what everybody else needs. And I do needs in double quotes, because it's like, often we aren't even checking in to find out like, do you even need this? Do you even want this? Because that's how contempt works. Nick talks about this culture of contempt, and I could relate. I could see how contempt is a function of power. Being a caretaker, for example, doesn't mean that you know better. Sometimes a caretaker might know better, but sometimes they don't. So I looked up this concept of the culture of contempt, and I found a New York Times article by Arthur Brooks, also the president of a conservative think tank. Immediately, I had no interest in reading this article. But then I thought, I guess I might be giving in to the culture of contempt if I don't. So I took a look. Brooks talks about how different political sides have an assumption that they're the benevolent ones and the other side isn't. Given my leftist political leanings, I scoffed at this. But then I paused. I have watched bits and pieces of Fox News and I hear what other conservatives say. Whatever I have seen communicates ideas that are intended to look benevolent. Just humor me for a second. For example, the idea that criminals might deserve the death penalty can be framed as being good for society. It might prey on fears of safety, but it's true. No one wants to feel unsafe in this world, so therefore, this is one way to ensure that. I don't agree with this, but regardless of my opinion, there is rhetoric out there that makes this sound like a good thing. The outrage toward undocumented immigrants is framed in a way so that your job is protected, etc., etc., While I don't think these positions are based in fact, and that they actually ignore humanity in conditions that lead to quote-unquote crime and immigration patterns, they are still based in this idea that the solution to these quote-unquote problems is out of benevolence. Brooks says that, quote, This outrage industrial complex works by catering to just one ideological side, creating a species of addiction by feeding our desire to believe that we are completely right and that the other side is made up of knaves and fools. It strokes our own biases while affirming our worst assumptions about those who disagree with us, unquote. We can't deny that this way of thinking exists in politics, and it also exists in our personal relationships. I realize that when my mom thinks I should wear the top she bought me, or that I should practice a certain exercise, or one of her many suggestions that I don't like, she's always thinking benevolently. That doesn't mean I need to do any of these things, or that they fit my needs, as Nick discusses. But this contempt, this idea that one person knows better, overrides what the other person needs. So yes, conceptually, I think Brooks and Nick have a good point. And this idea of quote-unquote knowing better comes from a certain type of conditioning, amongst other things. Speaking of, Nick mentioned that their mother was unmothered at the age of nine. So I asked more about their parents' upbringing and cultures. Yeah. So my mom's mom died when my mom was eight, and she is the oldest of three siblings. So she was in a lot of ways like raising her two younger siblings. And then also her grandmother like came in and was raising her as well. And so she, 
the way that I think about it is like her grandmother is another generation more traditional, right, than her mom might have been. Her grandmother is like another generation up in the tradition ranks. And then with my dad as well, he was raised in a mixture of places. He was like an infant in the US. He spent some of his childhood in Switzerland, and then he was raised in India after that. And he also had the experience of being like somewhat unmothered from the age of eight. And so both of my parents, and they're both the oldest of three, So both of them, when they moved to the States and then had my brother and me had had this experience of like, not necessarily like two parents in the home for all of their childhood and upbringings. And so they were really just like in a country, neither one of them lived in for any significant amount of time, figuring out how to be here and also parent here with these two American, like super American kids. Given that Nick's mom grew up in Korea and their dad grew up in India, I asked Nick how they met. So my dad was born in the States as a U.S. citizen because his dad was getting his Ph.D. And my mom was born and raised in Korea. And I need to get more of the details from my dad. I've got to ask him. But a summarized version of what happened with him is that like at around, I think, age 19, he decided to move to the U.S. and join the U.S. Army. and in, oh wait, I just got this date from my mom. 1977, in July, my parents met. My mom was a waitress at a bar in Korea, and my dad was stationed there, and they met. And this too is another gap that I need to fill. They fell in love, question mark? I'm not really sure, but they definitely had something, like some sort of a spark between them. My mom didn't really speak English. And my dad didn't really speak Korean. I think that when my dad was living there, that he understood and could speak a lot. Like he has a lot of natural ease with learning languages. But they did long distance for a while. And the way that they would do that was they would write letters through translators to each other. And that's also reminding me now I'm just like having all of these personal like gaps I want to fill. And then also like, do they still have those letters? I'm so curious to know what they said. (laughs) Yeah, right. That'd be so cool to see. Yeah. It's like looking at all love letters, but you're like, oh, wait, this isn't my, like, these are my parents. (laughs) Right? So weird. And now, especially because I'm like so grown up feeling and my parents are, you know, like my parents, but wow, that's a long time for two folks to be together in a relationship. I think what is also very unique and nuanced about that story is that, first of all, that generation of your father, like being an American citizen was not as common as it is for most Indians and other South Asians in the United States, as well as marrying outside of your culture, you know? So, I mean, it was even hard for my generation to marry outside their culture. Like, there's a lot of pushback. Can you talk a little bit about that, as well as what it was like during that time growing up in a more of a mixed-race household culturally? Yeah. So... Another gap identified, want to talk more to my parents about like how that really was for them and their experiences of marrying outside of their culture. I do remember that my dad, when my parents were together in Korea, I think in that time, he like won over my mom's family and like has a sweet relationship with her side of the family to this day. And I remember there was a trip that my parents took to India. And I think it was on that trip that my mom 
won over my dad's family. And when I say that, I mean like won their hearts, you know, like maybe if there was concern about them being from different cultures, I think that was mostly addressed or quelled or something like that um, in the times when people got to actually just like meet these humans and spend time with them. So for me, it's only really been in this past about year and four months or so that I've been deconstructing my own conditioning as it relates to like systems of oppression and white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, the binary construct of gender, like all these different ways in which systems of oppression are perpetuated in the United States. And for a really long time, I never thought about the fact that I look like a brown person in the world. I was raised in this area, which was so primarily white, like at least 80% white, that I never thought about how my being Asian and being mixed race really affected me. Like I never actively thought about it, but I experienced the othering and the, what would I call it? Just like a lot of various heartbreaks that came along with being a mixed race human in this place that I grew up in and just in the world. But it wasn't something that we really talked about at home very much at all. And even like when in high school, I started to hang out with all Asian kids. And again, this is a high school where it's like 80% white kids. So it kind of like takes effort to hang out with all Asian kids. I hung out with them because they understood me. And what I didn't realize at the time was like, they understood what it was like to be like the child of immigrant parents living in this rich white neighborhood where their parents valued different stuff than the other parents of, say, like the white kids, just to make a very blanket statement. And I own that. And that was frowned upon. Like my parents weren't here for that. They didn't like that I was hanging out with all the Asian kids. And in a conversation that I later had with my mom, she basically was saying that she was upset about it because she was like, we didn't move here so you could hang out with all the Asian kids. We moved here so you could be American, which to her translated to like me hanging out with all the white kids. But that's where I felt the least included. So it was just like so fascinating and complicated and complex for me to be in specifically this area as a mixed race kid, not talking about race at home. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying, like the relationship with yourself. It makes me also think about like the relationships your mom had with herself in terms of even feeling that way and the amount maybe they had to assimilate to be, you know, successful or to achieve that American dream and how they expected that from their children too. Yes. Oh, so much yes to that. There are countless times that I remember people saying, now in retrospect, I can name it like, oh, they were saying racist stuff to my mom. But at the time, I didn't know what it was. And I, for such a, I mean, really up until like just the last year and a little bit since I've been deconstructing my own internalized conditionings. I didn't understand why my mom would say the things she would say to me or do the things she would do because I was like, why don't you just see me the person? And then when I started to learn about like the importance of assimilation for safety and belonging, right? And like that ostracization just doesn't really work. And like her wants for me and the reasons why she did things coming from a super loving place made more sense to me. Like I Felt like I was able to better understand her and where she was coming from while also honoring 
the impact that her choices had on me. Yeah, that empathy is super important, I think, in terms of healing our relationship with our parents. I've gone through my own transformation with my mom in that sense, too, where it's totally like that. Why don't you see me? Like, don't you get it? Like, what's wrong with you? Like me thinking that about her, thinking about what she's thinking about me. And while there still is tension and there still is, you know, complexities within a relationship, I definitely have more empathy in that. Like, well, you know, I grew up here as an American kid, and she and my dad had to navigate so many new types of cultural norms, assimilation to a degree that, yes, I mean, as kids, my brother and I had to deal with that, no doubt, but on a different level, right? Like as children, not as adults, you know? So I can definitely understand that. But that is really, really fascinating just in terms of what they expected from you. I mean, my parents definitely wanted me to have other Indian friends. Both my parents are Indian, so they definitely did want that. Though they also were very much like, but we need to mix with everyone else, you know? So you have to have that balance if you want for things to work for you, you know? Nick mentioned that they had started to deconstruct different systems of oppression in the last year and a half. I asked what changed for them to come to this realization. I think it was a process of slowly breaking out of the mold that I was raised in. And so I think the first step for me was becoming pregnant and then giving birth and then nursing in public and realizing like, oh, I'm not a woman. And I, it was the juxtaposition of me assuming that people would just think that I was a woman because I was out in public with like a boob out nursing my kid that I on the inside was like, oh no, this is absolutely not who I am. And this is not the fullness of who I am. And so I don't like this. So the two of those experiences being at odds is what helped me to come around to first like coming out as genderqueer and now non-binary and just recognizing like, oh, I don't fit into the two categories that I thought were the only two categories that existed for my whole life. And so in that deconstruction, then I started to learn more about like cis-heteronormativity. And so I think that was kind of my first way in was like learning about cis-heteronormativity and then patriarchy. And then over time, just paying more attention in general to the ways in which I was conditioned. Then I took a class where they talked about race and gender and deconstructed those. And then one of my close friends at the time, a cis straight white dude, basically just like objectified mixed race people of color to me via text. And we had been friends for so long. And what I realized in him sending me that text was I had participated in like a, a different version of myself would have probably just like laughed or thought it was silly and texted something back. But for exactly where I was in that time in my learning and deconstructing, I was just like, no, this is not okay. And because it came from somebody whom I love so much, I didn't want it just if it just came from some random person, I might have been like, "Ugh, they're an asshole. But because it came from somebody so close to me, I was just like, holy shit, there's something here that I am really unaware of regarding systemic racism. And so that was really how that part got opened up for me. So I think it started with cis-heteronormativity and then kind of patriarchy and then white supremacy. And now as I deconstruct being autistic, like I'm like learning and looking more at ableism. That's really interesting that it all started very much with you breastfeeding in public, you know, and how suddenly it's like, wait, 
what are these norms, you know, and it starts questioning. I could just, I almost feel like I can picture all of this just like kind of like in your head being like, hmm, like just learning more and more. And then going back and thinking about like those times in high school and how you felt with your Asian friends and how that was different than with your white friends. And, you know, I almost feel like I can picture it like in, in a TV show, like just like a big flashback or something, you know. Literally every, each one of these has been like that for me. Like each new unpacking, each new system of oppression that I'm unfurling and deconstructing within me, there's this like, just as you described it, there's like a flashback montage where I suddenly see all of these different experiences that I had through a completely different lens and things feel like they make more sense to me. Like seemingly separate memories in time are becoming threaded together as I learn more about myself, the world that I was raised in, my parents, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know you mentioned being autistic. Can you talk about how that and being non-binary, both of those identities influence your own parenting style as well as the work you do as a parenting coach? It was almost two years ago during Autism Awareness Week or Autism Acceptance Week that folks at a genderqueer discussion group that I went to were talking about their own experiences of having been diagnosed autistic and what their experiences were like. And people were sharing about what their lives are like. And I was like, oh my God, there are things here that sound very similar to a lot of the things that I have experienced in my life, but have been taught were just not okay. So I've learned how to like mask them or hide them or just keep them undercover in some way or shame myself for them and not let them show. But they're all really parts of who I am and how I just be in the world and how I process. And just a few months ago, I was on Instagram and the account, the queer counselor posted something. And I can't remember exactly what the meme said at this time, but it was something about how trans and non-binary folks have a higher likelihood of being autistic or something like that. And it just in that, it was that night that I was reading this meme. I read the caption underneath. They said that folks could DM them and they would send a list of like autistic resources that they had put together. And so I asked for it and I got that and I just started looking and I just looked at Eric and I was like, dude, I'm autistic. And then I burst out crying. And it was just that day that I realized and I was ready to acknowledge like, I am autistic. That's true for me. I have hidden it for a long time. And because of ableism and the really narrow definitions of autism that folks are conditioned into, myself included, I didn't think it could possibly be true for a long time until I was ready to believe that it was true. And since then, it has been such a fascinating experience for me of really like taking off, I mean, this sounds so cliche, but like, because masking is a part of how I hid being autistic, especially in social situations, like I would pretend I would just show up in ways that didn't feel completely aligned for me, like taking off the masks and just showing up as me and then like having people still love me and choose me and want to know me more has been a really interesting and beautiful experience of feeling congruent and in integrity and then being loved like loving myself and then being loved. And that's been really fucking amazing. Wow, that's so beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, And for me, like the way that it affects my parenting is very much like paying attention to the ableism that is inherent in everything. And in parenting culture, one of my particular superpowers is like specificity of language. So like precision of language, 
the way that I understand things is all very specific. And so there are phrases that are very common in parenting that don't actually make sense to me. Like when someone tells their kid, you're not listening. I'm like, you have no idea if this person is listening or not. But what's actually happening is they're not doing what you want them to do. Like, why don't we actually name the thing that's happening instead of making an assumption about their experience? (laughs) Because really, it's that they're not doing what you want them to do. And the response you're having is because you're not getting your way. So let's like take some responsibility here for what's actually happening. That was like basically my whole childhood. So I completely know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So that and stuff like even just for example, when a grown-up says to a kid like, stay where I can see you. I'm like, how is this kid supposed to know your range of vision? Or like it just to me, it highlights so much how we center the parent in that way. Like the child gets centered to the detriment of the parent, but the parents like wants and desires get centered in a different way where it's like, stay where I can see you. It makes an assumption that the child should be able to like read the parent's mind and know instead of like what I tell my kid is like, stay where you can see me because he knows when he can see me, you know, like in those situations when we're out in public and stuff. And, and yes, my child has like he can see with his eyes and stuff so that's a phrase that we use so there are these phrases and another one like use your words that's the one that I was building up to I was like why am I telling this oh yeah because use your words I realized like as an autistic human there are times that I just don't want to use my words or it seems like too much effort or if I'm having a meltdown I don't want to use my words and holding space for that reality of myself has helped me to hold that space with my kid and be able to notice there's so many times when he's having a meltdown that he will go nonverbal. Like he will start to point at things. He will point at the things he's just been crying about. Like if he wants something out of the freezer, he'll be crying and crying. And for whatever reason, I'm saying no. And then he'll start pointing at the freezer. Then he'll start pointing at himself. He'll start pointing at the freezer and pointing at himself. And instead of me being like, use your words, I'm like, you're pointing at the freezer. Is it because you still want the popsicle? I see you pointing at yourself as because you want it or like, you know, like stuff like that, where I will be willing to meet him where he is, which is he doesn't want to be speaking right now. So I am willing to use my words like to confirm with him like what's happening, talk him through it, give him the words if he doesn't have access to them instead of like demanding that he use his. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting because I used to be a speech language pathologist. I would hear I mean, I've said this, too. Because part of my role as a speech language pathologist is to facilitate, I shouldn't say speech, but language, because language is verbal and nonverbal. So though I have said use your words, because sometimes you have goals that are to produce a three to five word phrase or command or whatever, you know, and um, I've also heard other parents say that. But again, you just blew my mind there. Like, it's so true. That centers what the parent, the parent, I need to understand what you want. So you need to use your words to tell me, as opposed to what can I do to facilitate me understanding what you want? Like, what can I understand about you emotionally right now that maybe you are shut down and don't want to use your words, just like any of us. That's like, totally acceptable behavior for any human being to like not want to talk because they are on emotional overload. Like, that's okay. So yeah, wow, that really blew my mind because it is so commonly spoken to children and I can see how patronizing that is. Yeah. So I think I did answer your question just of that aspect, right? That aspect of like my own deconstructing of 
in that particular case, like of ableism impacts the language that I use with my kid, not only just the actual words, but also like the ways that I communicate with him and meet him where he is. And then with like the binary construct of gender, like me coming out as non-binary has me raising him like with as much freedom of gender exploration and expression as I can offer him within the realization of like, yeah, he's being raised still here in this American culture. He's going to get conditioned into the binary of gender, but he's chosen his own pronouns for the last 16 months or so. And he's played around with them. And like, I feel really comfortable with the way in which we talk about gender very casually at home. And like, he's three and a half. So it's just That's a conversation I didn't think about until I was in my late 20s. And I didn't even come out until I was in my 30s. And like, now with him, we're talking about gender and pronouns and menstruating and like all kinds of different stuff that I just didn't really talk about as a kid. So it's impacted my parenting greatly on that front. For sure. Thank you so much for sharing that. So can you share more about what your services look like? Are they more like one on one, one on two, like group coaching? Uh, Yes, for sure. So for right now, I do one-on-one coaching with folks. And then I also have a Patreon page where folks can pay to have access to primarily writings that I share. So I share free stuff on Instagram. On Patreon, I do deeper dives. I post every Monday about something going more in depth into the history and also the potential how-tos. Not that I do prescriptive stuff, but like this is how I do stuff kind of sharings on Patreon. And then I also do a monthly Q&A for my patrons so they can send me up to a couple of questions and I respond to all of them anonymously, but then so everyone can hear everyone else's questions and my responses. I would not call them answers because usually I just respond with more questions. (laughs) But yeah, so that and the one-on-one coaching are my primary ways of working with folks right now. I am going to be teaching a course later this year on parenting through Andrea Renee's platform called Whole Self Liberation. So that's going to be later this year, like September, I think is when it starts. And I do have a desire to lead a group coaching program, but I'm not sure when I'm going to do that for right now. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today on Migrations. I learned so much from this conversation and I really appreciate you. Thank you, and you're welcome, and I appreciate you too. This was so much fun. This was. Thanks, Nick. You're welcome. There were so many parts of this conversation that I related to, but also parts that opened up new worlds for me. I mentioned how, as a speech therapist, I helped people of all ages facilitate their language. But even as someone that professionally helped others with language, I hadn't thought of the way specificity and the direction of language can affect parenting style. While I'm not a parent, I have several friends that are new parents or have young kids at home. And all I can say is that it does not look easy. So I understand that parents use language they hear from other people, and even language that teachers use when talking to their students. But as we can see from Nick, who identifies as autistic, it's important to consider the message we are sending when we talk to kids. This also reminded me of an essay I wrote titled, We Learn What We See, Not What We're Told, which I'll link in the show notes. I explored the same phrase that Nick talks about, you don't listen, and discuss how language has its limits and how it's really critical to think about what's motivating us when we say things. What are we really teaching by our actions? Do we want obedience or do we want understanding? 
And what do others want or need from us? I think when society and our environment or cultural norms naturally sways us in certain directions, we have to fight like crazy and continue to have these conversations to decenter the typical narratives. As always, I'd like to thank my creative talent that helped me on this episode. Thanks to Tiffany Wong for your help with the Migrations cover art. Thanks to Shin Kawasaki for the Migration song, Find Another Way. And thanks to Quincy Surasmith for editing this episode. I also used music I discovered from CC Mixter, titled Recreation by Airtone. And of course, I want to give a shout out to my $20 a month and above Patreon patrons. So thank you so much to my brother Shaline and Dahlia Guerin for your generous support. Thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. Remember, you could support this podcast by going to www.patreon.com migrations. Thanks again, and until next time.